When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Monday night, reporter Peter Aldis was relaxing, watching some TV, trying to unwind. I had finished my day, uh, and I think it was 9.21 p.m. my time, just after midnight, East Coast time. Peter covers science for BuzzFeed, and you can hear it in his voice. He's the kind of person precise enough to note that something happened at 9.21. Earlier that day, he'd written a story about AstraZeneca's newest COVID vaccine trial. The results looked pretty good. It seemed like the vaccine was 79% effective. But then he got this email just after 9.21 p.m. from the National Institutes of Health. With something that I've just never seen before, which is basically saying that the Data Monitoring Committee for the big U.S. trial of AstraZeneca's coronavirus vaccine was concerned about the statement AstraZeneca had put out. Basically, AstraZeneca's data, the data that looked positive, the data that was in Peter's earlier story, was outdated and potentially misleading. AstraZeneca, the NIH essentially said, made its vaccine look better than it really was. In Peter's world, this was a five-alarm fire. Immediately, I stopped what I was doing, went to see it, and, and I'm emailing AstraZeneca and uh, the, the NIH and my editors as, what is going on here? How unusual is it to get a statement like that? I mean, for someone like me, who's not deep in the weeds, it felt really strange. Uh, for someone like me, who is rather deeper in the weeds, um, it felt very strange. It's just, just frankly astonishing to see that. And, and even more to see it because so much is riding on this trial. This is not the first time that there have been questions about AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine trials or the first time that the company has frustrated government regulators. AstraZeneca has made what most scientists agree is an effective vaccine, but time after time it has hobbled itself, both with scientific mistakes and baffling communication. This was supposed to be the clean trial that would clear the air and finally sort of lay these questions about the vaccine to rest and the world can move on because this is a tremendously important vaccine, in particular for the developing world. I think this story overall is a tragedy because I think, as Tony Fauci said on TV yesterday, this still seems to be a good vaccine, an acceptably good vaccine. Yet it just keeps seeming to going through a series of stumbles, which Fauci described as the latest one as an unforced error. Today on the show, millions of people are depending on AstraZeneca's vaccine. So why does the company keep stumbling? 
I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to talk about why this vaccine matters so much, because here in the U.S., so far, we've got three vaccines, mm-hmm. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. Where, where does AstraZeneca fit into this picture? In the U.S., I think, arguably, it may not significantly mm-hmm. fit into the picture. So if we go back to last June, July, this vaccine was still seen really as the the kind of leading candidate. It was described as such by WHO's chief scientist. We had, as late as July, a really glowing article written in Bloomberg about it. Front runner was what was used there. But in the US right now, if Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson are able to meet their production promises, we can probably complete the rollout in the U.S. without needing the AstraZeneca vaccine. So who needs it? Who needs it really is the, is the developing world, and particularly, I would argue, sub-Saharan Africa. So the U.S. is around, you know, getting up to 40 doses per 100 people. The EU as a whole is, a, is behind. France is at about 13 doses per 100 people. The world, overall, 6.1 doses per 100 people, much lower. And if we look at countries in Africa, South Africa, 0.33 doses per 100 people. Senegal is possibly, you know, for sub-Saharan Africa, is possibly furthest ahead, about one dose per 100 people. And most countries in Africa just nothing so far. So there's a long, long way to go. Perhaps not surprisingly, coronavirus vaccine development and distribution has not been equal between countries. Rich countries like the U.S. have gotten the lion's share of vaccines. Indeed, some critics accuse rich countries of hoarding them. Which is why the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was developed with scientists at Oxford, is so important. It's supposed to go to those places that right now are really struggling. So when AstraZeneca got on board with the group at Oxford University that developed it, and that was back in April last year, AstraZeneca said it would make it available pretty much at cost. So it's cheap. But still, even cheap, it's probably not affordable for many of the poorest countries in the world without help from the richer countries. And we have a facility set up to finance that. It's called COVAX. 
It is supported by the WHO and an organization called Gavi, otherwise known as the Vaccine Alliance, and another organization linked to Bill Gates's philanthropy. But the key thing is it will deliver hundreds of millions of doses for sure to poorer countries of the world. And that facility is banking most heavily on this vaccine. And and the other key thing about this vaccine is it doesn't require this sort of deep frozen storage and distribution. It can be done at regular refrigeration temperatures. So that's a huge advantage if you're going into you know, tropical countries with less infrastructure and so on. Thinking back to the beginning, I remember one of the first interviews I did about the COVID vaccine trials, it really felt like the team at Oxford had it figured out, that they were the front runner and that they were going to get this done. What was that team doing? They have this sort of platform for developing vaccines. Basically, what they have, it, it's, a, it's a virus from a chimpanzee. It's then made so it can't replicate properly. And then they splice into it genetic material from whatever virus you want to make a vaccine for. And in this case, it's something called the spike protein from the coronavirus. So that's what they developed. They were able to do that very quickly because they had this platform already in place that, you know, they had the technology and they were very bullish from early on. So in April, members of the team were talking to the British press, you know, saying they were very confident that they were, this vaccine was going to work, that they hoped they would have it ready by September 2020 at that point. You know, it looked good. I remember being so struck by Adrian Hill, one of the scientists there at Oxford, almost sounding like he was he was bragging about the vaccine, or maybe he was just so confident that they were going to, you know, slay the dragon with this thing. They, he and uh, Sarah Gilbert, who I think is the other most prominent member of the team, uh, were, were both very bullish. In retrospect, I think some people have described it as hubris, but you know, it looked good. It, it did look good at that point. Things started to go a little bit off the rails during that summer, however. The Oxford-AstraZeneca trial hit some snags. And to be honest, I had trouble understanding what was happening. It, the results were good, or they weren't good, or they were a mishmash. Help me sort of simply understand what was going on. Well, in part, I would say the Oxford team were a victim of the British anti-coronavirus strategy. So in the United States, we had a second surge in the summer across the south of the United States. In the UK, during that time, transmission went right down, which, of course, is good. But it's not good if you need cases to know whether they're happening in your trial in the vaccine arm or the placebo arm. So it meant that the UK trial, which they were hoping would be done and just didn't have results out there by September or so, was not making the progress that it should. So the team made a decision. They combined the UK trial with a trial in Brazil. Plus, their methods were much more complicated than other trials. They tested the vaccine in multiple age groups, 
they administer different size doses and at different time intervals. Eventually, these complicated methods produced complicated results. Some data implied the vaccine was 70% effective, others 90%. Peter says it was all incredibly hard to interpret. As scientists looked at this, it was just, well, I mean, some described it to me as a mess. Many described it to me as confusing. I was certainly confused by it. I don't think anybody really is giving a lot of weight to the claim that the vaccine had 90% efficacy in preventing disease. But exactly what the number was, I think people were just so confused by all the different subgroups in the trial and the different conditions and the different dosing intervals that it was just, oh, I don't know. I don't think we know. And that's when you know, the US trial became, okay, um, it's clearly not going to get approved in the US. I mean, the FDA likes US data, right, anyway, but particularly in the light right. of the confusion surrounding the British Stroke Brazilian trial, they wanted a cleaner, simpler analysis. And that is what we all hoped we were going to get. Would you say that the problems in the British and Brazilian situation were the trial itself or perhaps the communication about the results from a company that very much wanted to be, you know, delivering a solution? I think it's both. Scientists whose views I consult and put some store by who are experts don't think the Oxford trial was that well conducted. But certainly, I think a lot of the pushback came from this claim, which certainly AstraZeneca was pushing, I would say, a little bit more strongly than Oxford, that the vaccine was 90% effective. I mean, and the truth is, a 70% vaccine is very useful. It's not yeah. bad. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, they were just, I guess, in the shadow of these sort of spectacular results announced by Pfizer and Moderna. Well, I, you know, I can't speak to why AstraZeneca chose to emphasize that particular finding, but it, it did come after Pfizer and Moderna had delivered their findings of greater than 90% efficacy. So. There's another issue between AstraZeneca and the FDA that I think was quite important as well. Tell me about that. So by about September last year, there have been a couple of instances, I think in the UK trial, of a condition called transverse myelitis. It's an inflammatory condition that affects the spinal cord. It's kind of similar to MS uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in the way it presents. And they'd seen what they thought were a couple of conditions, a uh, couple of cases of that. So they halted, uh, Oxford and AstraZeneca halted the trials to take a look at this. Now, in itself, this is not that surprising. It's not necessarily... Right, a safety that, pause is, is a thing that this, happens. This happens, yeah. But I think they antagonized FDA officials who felt they weren't promptly informed about it. They learned through news stories about it. I think even after that, the CEO of AstraZeneca did a briefing with investors before the company really provided a lot of information to the FDA. And I think that really created some issues. Their 
officials at the FDA were frustrated about the information they were getting from AstraZeneca. They thought they weren't being as upfront as they should have been. And it's very hard for me to understand. You would think with the US government putting a lot of money into this trial and the FDA being the key regulatory authority, you would expect the company to put clear communication to the A, the funder, and B, the regulatory agency would be absolutely your top priority. But for some reason, it didn't seem to go the way the FDA wanted it to go. Then, just this month, another hurdle. Reports from Europe of some rare and occasionally fatal blood clots in people who had received the vaccine. France, Germany, Italy... Spain, and other countries all halted AstraZeneca vaccinations for two weeks. The European Medicines Agency says they investigated and found the vaccine to be safe and effective and didn't increase the risk of clots. But the damage to public trust was done. And that is nobody's fault, right? That just happened. It was unavoidable. But the trouble is, is we're starting to develop a narrative of oh, this is the vaccine with problems. And it all starts to glom onto, oh, AstraZeneca, yeah, that's the one people don't like, isn't it? And there's the issue, I think, because at some point, perception becomes reality. And if people, if you're already worried about vaccine hesitancy, which we know, I mean, in France, vaccine hesitancy is a huge problem generally. In the U.S., it's a huge problem generally. You know, this is, this is not great. We'll be right back. This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The messy trial data, the European concerns, the back and forth with regulators. All of that was lurking in the background when AstraZeneca released its U.S. data earlier this week with that 79% effective rate. And then the NIH responded questioning that number. I, I mean, I've been on Twitter saying I'm dumbfounded, I'm astonished, and I really am. It's like this is your chance to get it back on track. 
We can put all of the questions around the British and Brazilian trials behind us. Clean, new trial, go to the FDA, get the FDA's stamp on it, and then the real business can go forward. And you would think that the top, top priority would make sure that nobody is going to have any question about the announcement you make. And then announcement comes out, everybody thinks, oh, that's a little surprising that the efficacy was in the higher range than I would have expected it to be. But then to see that, I mean, just it beggars belief. It's like, how did you put yourself in a position that you put out a press release that this independent board set up by the U.S. government agency that's funded a lot of this trial is not going to be happy with. How could that have happened? It just seems, again, I I barely have words for it. I, I cannot get my head around how they let themselves get into that position. Why can't AstraZeneca get out of its own way? I don't know. I really don't know. If it's 70%, if it's fine, it's fine. If it's 66%, it's fine. It's good enough. It's useful. Late Wednesday night, after we talked with Peter, AstraZeneca released updated information about the U.S. trial, saying that its vaccine was 76% effective, only a tiny bit worse, three percentage points, than what the company said earlier this week. Which makes this whole episode feel like yet another self-inflicted wound that could hurt the effort to get more people vaccinated. You know, this feels a bit like it has two parts for me. One is the question that it makes people scared, that it contributes to vaccine hesitancy. But two, that it perhaps reinforces the idea that the U.S. gets the best vaccines and that everybody else, and particularly developing countries, get a worse one. Yeah. Uh, I understand why somebody might form that view. I mean, I think if we go back to what FDA said, it was, you know, they were, they were going to approve vaccines that were 50%, had 50% efficacy. The astonishing success of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are based on this new RNA technology, everybody's draw hit the floor when they saw that as, wow, these are vaccines are really good. And that has become a benchmark, which is perhaps unreasonable to compare to in in some ways. Those vaccines, unfortunately, are probably not going to be affordable to roll out across the whole world. They are affordable for the US. Uh, We're a very wealthy country. But Johnson & Johnson, which is being delivered here, that's kind of on a par for a single dose with, with AstraZeneca. It's, it's not that different. AstraZeneca might be slightly more effective. And then all of them seem to prevent you getting sick and dying. But I understand the perception. Yeah. Getting herd immunity for the herd when the herd is 7 billion people. You know, this is an extraordinary enterprise to try and pull off. And, you know, you hope for it to all go smoothly. So anything that makes it go less smoothly is not great. Peter Aldis, thank you very much. 
Well, thank you for having me. Uh, very much enjoyed talking to you. Peter Aldous is a science reporter at BuzzFeed News. And that's it for us today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I want to recommend that you go back and listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next about the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. It's about how decades of decision-making left residents in dire need of clean water. What Next will be back on Monday. Mary will be on a well-deserved vacation, but you're getting some guest hosts, including me. All right, have a good weekend. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.